Hello and welcome to a new episode of SIS Masters Podcast. I'm Arnaud Rijard, founder of Sport Innovation Society, and I interview for you some of the best experts in the sports industry. Today I welcome Mark Parkman, who has just left the IOC, where he has produced 12 Olympic Games, yes, 12 Olympic Games, and launched and managed Olympic Channel and Olympics.com. We will speak about his very unique experience in sports content, from broadcasting the games to producing the Reading Team documentary you can see on Netflix, to his new project, Blue Star Studio in Atlanta. Hi, Mark. How are you today back home in Atlanta, Georgia? I'm great. How are you? I'm good in Guadalajara, just getting out of the Taekwondo World Championship in a place you know very well. Very, very much so. Yes. <laughs> Hope it went well. I heard great things about it. Yeah. So very happy to welcome you today. We've, uh, we've been knowing each other for years when you guys did produce uh, the Panam Games, Guadalajara 2011, uh, which was beautiful broadcasting. Uh, the first time I discovered uh, the size and the quality of your work. <laughs> Uh, but before going to, to before speaking more about your journey, uh, quite unique in the Olympic world, I love to have a simple questions. When you were a kid, what is the first memory of sports that you have? The first big one. How did you fall in love with sport? Well, there were two things. One, um, the University of Georgia football. Uh, my, uh, my dad would take me to those games as a kid and, uh, fell in love with that and was fortunate enough to be able to go to the university there. And I must point out that we are the defending national champions, uh, having won it after a 41 year break. I won't say how old I was 41 years ago, but I was a kid. Uh, so it was good to see that, uh, finally come to fruition and we're number one again this year undefeated. Uh, so hopefully we might be able to repeat. Uh, and then the second memory is actually, um, you know, one that I've, I've told the story. Um, it's when I fell in love with the Olympics. Um, when the Olympic games were in Montreal in 1976, there was Bruce Jenner, Uh, now Caitlyn Jenner, Uh, and he won the decathlon gold medal. And I remember as a kid, I went out into my parents' yard and I set up a decathlon competition by myself with, uh, you know, I put sticks in the ground and probably uh, had a very small, maybe uh, one one quarter of a meter hurdle <laughs> that I I would jump over and run around the house and I threw a found a stick I used as a javelin I got a rock that I threw as a shot put the high jump and the pole vault were a little tough to do but <laughs> dangerous <laughs> but uh, all the others you know I I uh, that's where I kind of fell in love with the Olympics um, so those are those are the two uh, things that I remember most. So since that day, when you put images of sports that are quite not easy, you put, don't do it at home. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, those two would have probably resulted in a, a trip to the uh, emergency room if I tried to uh, pole vault or high jump into with no pits. <laughs> For, so from that day at the decathlon with... Um, how did you move on to the Olympics to step into the broadcasting world? I mean, it's such a small world, broadcasting. Uh, how did you manage your way uh, to get to the top of this organization? But how did you manage your way at the beginning? Well, you know, it, it kind of, it. when I was a kid, uh, my, my grandfather was in the newspaper business in a uh, small, small town in West Georgia where I grew up. And... Um, I would work there uh, during, uh, even when I was a teenager and when I was in college and I always knew I wanted to be in the media. Um, And um, when I was in university at University of Georgia, I worked in the athletic department because I love sports and 
I was around the media and helping helping them um, helping the sports communication office uh, publicize the uh, the the teams and I was fortunate enough to my first job when I left university was working uh, with Conan Wolf, which is now called Burson Conan Wolf, the mm-hmm. uh, world's biggest maybe PR firm, and we worked on the Goodwill Games, which was Ted Turner's uh, version of the Olympics that he created after the two boycotts of the um, 80 and 84 games. And that's where I've learned television because it was, I was part of the Turner broadcasting team that was uh, televising being the host broadcaster and, and learn the, what went into big scale events and how they were produced and, and organized. And that led to um, to eventually me joining the organizing committee in Atlanta um, as part of the host broadcast operation that was headed by Manolo Romero. Uh, and I guess you could say the rest is, is history because uh, up until uh, about six weeks ago, the, for the past 29 years, I have been involved in, in the Olympic Games in various capacities. Yeah. You've been, if I'm if I'm not mistaken, you oversaw broadcast operations for 12 Olympic Games. So when athlete when an athlete has done two or three Olympics, it's fantastic, but you've done 12. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> from facility construction and management to launching right. to the broadcast, live broadcast, obviously, of the games, to launches the uh, direct consumer streaming services with Olympic Channel. You've won me awards. I mean a fantastic career, but if we go back to the beginning, what did fascinate you? Um, is it the technological side of things? Is it the, the, the final results with fantastic images of great emotions? Uh, what, 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 it, what was it that was driving you? I think it was um, having the love of, of, of being in the media, the magic of television, the magic of the Olympic Games, because I'm, I'm not a technical guy, you know, but, you know, and the technicians will, will tell you that I was smart enough that they couldn't, couldn't, I'll use the term BS me. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I've been around enough production trucks and live productions to know what's good and what's not. But if you ask me to set up the mobile unit and make it work, I couldn't do that. Uh, you, you hire excellent, smart people to do that, but, uh, and I wasn't a producer either. I was coming more from the relationship side of, of working with the broadcasters, knowing it, knowing what it was they wanted, having the organization skills and the management skills of building teams and, and hiring good people and getting them to, to, and to facilitate what it was they were doing. And so I, I just slowly, you know, went from being looking after the rights holding broadcasters and and their needs to planning host broadcasting to then overseeing operations, which included the production, the engineering, the the logistics, uh, the dealing with the broadcasters. Um, And that's what I did for those those 12 games as part of whatever various host broadcaster we were, whether it was in the early days in Atlanta, we were part of the organizing committee. Uh, Then uh, Manolo and a few others, we won the bid for Salt Lake City. And and that's when Manolo created international sports broadcasting. Uh, And we did the Athens games and the, um, the Torino games under that moniker. And then, you know, the IOC, was looking at it and said, okay, we, we have the, our largest source of revenue that comes in for every games is from the broadcasters, but yet, you know, it's the organizing committee's responsibility to select a host broadcaster. And sometimes they were doing it late. Um, Sometimes there was some political considerations of, of doing it uh, with, with, with local focus and, and sometimes that local focus was inexperienced and didn't know exactly 
what the rights holders were were needing, and the rights holders were always the same. Uh, the IOC had long-term contracts with some of the big ones, NBC and EBU and the Japanese consortium, the uh, CCTV, Seven Network in Australia, uh, OTI. They were all kind of the same broadcasters, but yet uh, it was not guaranteed that the same group would be uh, servicing them and providing the host broadcast. And it caused some inefficiencies, you know, particularly in equipment retention, people retention. And that's when the IOC made the the great decision to bring that host broadcast operation in-house and create OBS, Olympic Broadcasting Services. So then we transitioned into OBS and um, I continued in that role through through the London and Sochi Games. Hmm. And people don't realize what it means to produce the Olympics. You know, when you, people always think, if you speak about big events, obviously you've got the Olympics, um, you've got the FIFA World Cup, you've got Super Bowl. <laughs> But uh, the Olympics is just 28 sports, different venues, outdoor, indoor, different locations. Uh, can you help us understand how complex it is uh, as a broadcasting when it comes to broadcasting capacities? Well, you know, I'll I'll say this, and I know some people may disagree with me, but um, there is nothing more complex in the world of television than doing an Olympic Games. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the the World Cup, which is happening now, um, is. Um, You know, it's 64 matches. It's uh, over 30 days, which makes it a little bit more complicated. But there, you know, there's some days where there are no matches. Uh, Super Bowl. It's uh, become, you know, it's one event. It's a three or four day production with all the ancillary events, but it's one venue. Yeah, there may be 100 cameras, but the Olympic Games over 17 days, you're at 40 venues, all working for the most part, uh, or half to three quarters of them working simultaneously. The operation has grown to about 8,000 people in order to pull it off. And what OBS produces is about 10,000 hours of content over course of 20 days. Uh, that's 10,000 hours is more than one year. About 8,300 hours in a year. In 17 days, OBS is doing a year's worth of content. So you factor all that in, uh, the logistical challenge of getting those people there, housing those people, flying those people, feeding those people, clothing those people. Uh, not to mention, you know, you've got all the broadcasters from around the world who are televising the games and needing services as well in a 55 to 65,000 square meter broadcast center that's purpose built for those broadcasters. And it's enormous. Uh, there's, there's, there's nothing as complex, but there's also nothing more rewarding. You know, when you, you know, you, a lot goes into the planning. It's a uh, intensive, you know, everybody says, Oh, the Olympics, uh, you know, why are you working on those four or five, six years in advance? Well, The stuff I just said, <laughs> it takes time. You just can't, you just can't drop 8,000 people into, uh, into uh, Tokyo and say, okay, go do it. Um, a lot of pre-planning. And if you've done your job right, then the games should be the easiest part. They typically aren't, but uh, <laughs> 
Um, but you know, that's why it takes so long because it is a, and then you think about the, all the, I haven't, I didn't even mention all the technical, you know, the, uh, meters and meters and kilometers of cable and all the power that's needed and, and the fiber. And, you know, now it's, it's all cloud-based, which was one of the latest advances, but it's, it's an enormous challenge. And the one thing that I think uh, people around the world should appreciate more. And I say this today because, you know, most of the world is watching the world cup and what HBS is doing is phenomenal. And what, um, what OBS does is phenomenal. Uh, and I think viewers just see it, uh, you know, and take it for granted, but there's been a hell of a lot of work from those two organizations to bring those two world events to everybody's screen, whatever it may be. And a lot of credit and a lot of hard work's gone into that. Yeah. And the thing is that when you, all the broadcasters who pay hundreds of millions of dollars uh, have a lot of expectations, obviously, towards you guys. So the IOC has expectations. You, uh, the right holders have expectations. And since if it's every four years, everyone expects the best all the time. So there's no room for failing. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but the event is happening every four years. There's no way you can test everything before, I would guess, because there's no way you can have all sports together at the same time to make a test. Just not happening. So you mentioned right. a lot of planning. Supposed to be the easiest part when you produce uh, doing the games. But the real test is not existing, is it? No, not, you know, the each each organizing committee of Olympic Games, they have test events, but they're not real tests from a broadcasting standpoint. Yeah. Uh, typically, it's more of a sport and operational test, uh, maybe a data and timing test as well. But from a true broadcast perspective, it's not because, you know, OBS isn't there with all its cameras and, and OB vans and crew. Uh, so yeah, it's, you, you have a few rehearsals the few days before the, um, the competition starts, um, uh, the crews get there two or three weeks prior to set it all up. And, um, that's why that planning time is so important and so intensive to make sure that when, you do have those 8,000 people come into an Olympic city that things are going to be ready. And you, you can't underestimate the, the detailed planning that goes into that to ensure that the fibers are there, the power are there, the cable pass are there, the transport is there, the security, everything has to, and it, it doesn't always work <laughs> flawlessly, you know, um, and that's the beauty of having an experienced group like OBS, like HBS that's now doing the World Cup, that you have these group of professionals who do this every day, uh, and that's their job. And they all do, you know, and when you see the magic and the beautiful pictures of, of, what, of what they're producing, It just is, um, for me, having done it every time, I just, I just sit back and say, wow, this is, this is amazing, you know, because it, it truly is. Totally agree. Uh, and I'm a coach, Eddie Rees, I don't know if you know him, a swimming coach, more than 60 medals from his athletes, fantastic coach, once yeah. told me uh, that when he was preparing the Olympic cycle of his athletes, which is a bit the same as you, you go from one Olympic, one summer to one summer, one winter to one winter. Um, the first two years of the Olympic cycle, he tried new things. So new technologies, eventually new ways of practicing. Uh, and the last two years, now st stick to what he knew, what's working well, nothing new. 
But when it, when it comes to the Olympics and broadcasting, there's always new technologies. Uh, once you move to the cloud, once it's uh, 4K to 8K, uh, just to give easy to understand examples, but there's so much new technologies to understand. How did you, how did you manage to embrace new technologies which is needed to deliver new images to surprise in some ways and make it happen successfully? Well, that's it's an interesting it's an interesting point because in some in some respects, what what we would do and what OBS is still doing is kind of that same cycle. Those two years, you know, Tokyo happened last year, so Paris is is there's just three years between because of the pandemic. But you know, OBS is 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 they're testing new technologies. They're looking at what they can do. But at the same time, you know, they had a big meeting with the broadcasters in Paris a few months ago where they have to explain all their plans to the broadcasters who are depending upon them to provide them the signals and, and the coverage. So you do have a there is a, a time when you have to say, OK, we're going to lock this in because you also have to do vendor contracts. You have to start hiring the right people to match those plans. But on the other hand, you know, the Olympics was always where you want to display new technology and you want to have the latest and greatest because it is the world's greatest event. So you want the coverage to be up to that same standard. Uh, and it's a juggling act, you know, how far can you push something that may be unproven uh, without sacrificing the excellence that you have to deliver. Because the last thing you want to do is go and do an Olympics and have technology that wasn't proven and didn't work. And, you know, it appear that way to the viewers. That would not be good. So it is. You know, it's a good analogy. Two years, uh, four, year, year four and three, you're, you're planning years one and two, you're refining and locking and, uh, and making sure it all works. <laughs> you're peaking, you know, you want to, as a broadcaster, you want to peak <laughs> during the games, you know, just like an athlete does. Yeah. You want to peak and you want to do things no one has done before. So mm, that, that makes it very complex. Um, what are the technologies uh, that you think were game changers? And then what are the ones you think will be the game changers for the next, as uh, the next four, five, 10 years? Oh, the just looking back, you know, the biggest game changers back in the early days were the, you know, the various point of view cameras and the super slow motion cameras and the transition into the, from standard def to H def, uh, those were monumental. Um, you know, now I think some of the, um, it's all about the, the various forms of data that you can visualize. Um, not necessarily that's all on your screen, but perhaps on a second screen, you know, it's so one of the things that we were looking at is how to make the Olympics app a second screen device during the game so that, you know, somebody's watching on NBC or BBC or uh, seven network. Um, and then if they want a deeper dive into data and results and scores and things, they, they get that on the, uh, on a second screen device, preferably the Olympic app. Um, I think I think that's where some of the challenges and and opportunities lie going forward is how can you you know how can you build that immersive experience so that all the audiences who those who want to sit and lean back and you know don't really care about the uh, the numbers and the analytics can enjoy that experience but yet also offer to those who are who are much more immersive and used to doing that, and I'm referring to probably the younger generation, mm -hmm. who 
who is more second screen native and they're doing things on their phone, how can you make what's on that screen more interesting to them? So you, you catch their attention and you continue to grow an audience. Those are some of the challenges for the future. And I know that, you know, everybody's trying to figure it out because everybody wants to increase the, the viewership, have the one-to-one relationship with a viewer and, and get them to come back to your platform, whatever it may be. So those are, I think, the, the big challenges going forward. So the ability to produce different layers in some ways uh, for different profiles and user, and user experience. Hmm. Well, a personalized, personalized experience, you yeah. know, hmm. you know, if you, if you, if you're a viewer in, in Spain, you know, you want to know more about your Spanish athletes. Well, how can you find that? You know, you, there, you know, through apps, through data, through hmm. ways that, you know, you can, you can get more immersive, That's interesting what you say, because I remember when I spoke to the former Tokyo 2020 uh, CTIO, we were saying, if, you, if you're, let's say, if you're American, there's so many Americans living in other countries, but they see the games with a national broadcaster who has the rights. So the national broadcaster will not make a focus on the Americans, <laughs> but, but you want that content. So massive opportunity to make available uh, a lot more content than what the national broadcaster. That's when the question of territories sometimes does not make total sense. Right. I remember, I think he was trying to, trying to uh, offer uh, expats the way to, to watch their... Uh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, but there, there were rights agreements that uh, <laughs> yeah <laughs> had some clauses against that, and I don't think uh, at the end of the day, I don't think he was success successful in uh, pulling that one off. <laughs> but that's a concept, no? Uh, being yeah. everything you want to personalize content, you have access to it, right? Hmm. Cloud, cloud has been a game changer for you. In your operations? Well, it, it certainly has an, an OBS's operation um, and the broadcaster's operation because the, the efficiencies that it gives, particularly during games time, of having readily almost live access to data and video wherever you may be is a game changer for operations hmm. you know some of it was necessitated by the pandemic you know in in tokyo and beijing there were a lot of restrictions and you know we were encouraging as as a, a minimum one amount of people that needed to travel uh and one of the benefits of the cloud was that you know Broadcasters could set up operations in their home countries uh, as opposed to sending, uh, you know, hundreds of people to the host cities. And it was almost as though they were they were in the broadcast center wherever they were because the tools and the that they had were were right there. You know, so, yeah, it was a big game changer. Um So efficiency, quality, uh, access to live data anywhere. Yeah. What about cost? Is it does it represent some savings for the IOC or for the right holders? Yeah, it's big, big because you know to you know to let's just say that you decide to put a whole edit operation in uh, in Berlin as opposed to in Beijing, yeah, add up the people, you know, just the, the cost of airplanes and hotels and per diems and all that you don't have. Hmm. Uh, and then it also then requires less space in a broadcast center, which also 
results in less cost for both the organizing committees, the host broadcaster. It's a technology is is definitely a a an efficient and financially beneficial way forward. Yeah. Hmm. I remember years ago, uh, the SpiderCam was a revolution for stadiums, uh, bringing yeah. new angles. Do you think, and that's a very, that's a question coming from someone who's not expert in that. <laughs> Do you think drones uh, will impact a lot what you can shoot when you can? Yeah, the, the, and you see it already, both, both in the production and then their capability, you know, in, in Tokyo, that whole opening ceremony with the, with the, the globe, that was all drones, you know, the Intel, the Intel drones. And the, I think one of the things with the coverage is, you know, there's still some comfortabilities that the, the sport people uh, need to get more comfortable with from a safety perspective, you know, Mm -hmm. Yeah, people don't like drones just flying over <laughs> them randomly. They would much prefer them being cameras being on cables and attached to uh, hard structures. So I, I think that once that comfort level and, and plus, you know, they're they're pretty small now and they're producing great pictures. So once that continues you'll see more and more of it used because people will become more comfortable from a safety perspective. Hmm. Okay. Let, let's go back to the complexity of the games. Let, I would love to um, have some of your most surprising experiences. Let's say one crazy moment, uh, most likely during the games, you will never forget because it was so challenging. <laughs> you're bringing you're bringing back nightmares um <laughs> the um the one that sticks out in my mind is the opening ceremony in atlanta when i and my team were on our way to the stadium for the opening and um we discovered that the whole results system was not working. Um, and the, um, the, the failure, uh, to produce start list rosters, uh, much less the next morning when competition would start of, of having some results, was uh, something that, you know, I didn't, I don't think I left the broadcast center for about two days. Uh, we were there 24 straight hours, maybe 36 to 48. And uh, it continued throughout the games. It was a, it was a challenge. Uh, and uh, we had to implement, part of the problem was the, the systems were not interconnected. So you would get one thing at one venue and another thing at another venue. And so we were going back to the uh, old, okay, let's print out the start list. Let's put it on a fax machine, fax it to the venue. And then the venue people would have to make copies and then rush the start list out to all the commentators and the commentator boxes because the information system and the results weren't working. So that was one that, we we never relived thank thank god <laughs> but it was that was probably the most challenging yeah oh yes i can imagine the nightmare especially when you don't see the solution uh, yeah. that's where after maybe into planning you always think about plan b c and d <laughs> oh yeah yeah you have to absolutely <laughs> and some things that surprise you in a very positive way, you didn't think it would work so well, or we would, be, or it would be so spectacular, and wow, it was a blast. I think it was probably um, the the 
the latest was when we were in Buenos Aires for the Youth Olympic Games. Mm, beautiful and one. See the traffic that we were getting on OlympicChannel.com after you know we launched in 2016 after Rio, and that Youth Olympic Games was really. I'd say one of the turning points um, because we did have worldwide rights. We were able to stream all the events um, and to see that we were offering something that had not been done before through uh, IOC owned and operated platform was really, was really gratifying. Because of the success, I mean, the consumptions that um, that fans uh, enabled, uh, that's not correct in English, but because of the success of the content for the fans, it was. Yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was, first of all, the games were fantastic. Yeah. You know, Argentina did a tremendous job. Um, they, it, it, and it has been somewhat of a, a format for the future. Olympic Games with yeah. what's happening in Paris with the urban park, you know, yeah. that was for the most part conceived in, in Buenos Aires. Um, but no, it was, it was the, um, you know, the direct to consumer one platform that had all the Olympic uh, live action. You mm. could get it there on, on our platform. Um, and, You know, it was a one-stop shop. You could come, you could get results, you could get live events, you could get features, the documentaries that we were producing as well. We produced a, the fabulous uh, Five Rings film, the one about the Argentinian basketball team called The Golden Generation, which was the prequel to The Redeem Team, yeah. our latest one that we uh, is on Netflix. Yeah. But all that just kind of, came together and it really I think it 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 turned the corner for uh, for what is now olympics.com and the vision of the future hmm. Olymp coming to olympics.com you've experienced a lot of different you went from live to non-live uh, having a lot of non-live with all its uh, different formats and we see that sports now is very much consumed in non-life uh, with great blockbusters, <laughs> uh, you know, from the last dance to the Redeem team, which is, right. and congratulations, a fantastic, fantastic documentary. So people, I mean, the teams producing the games, they have to think about what will be used also in the future. <laughs> right, yeah. Which is, so you mentioned 10,000 hours, I suppose it's live. But there's a lot more hours that are produced for because you don't know the stories that will be used next because you don't know what will happen in the event. But right. uh, coming to a question, um, what do you think the formats as the formats of the future is the one people will like more? Uh, how the non-live will be integrated to the live eventually, uh, which could be something interesting as well. Well, I think it's part of that second screen experience. You know, mm -hmm. one of the, well, let's take a step back. One of the, one of the purposes for creating Olympic Channel was to go direct to consumers, have a 24 7, 365 day proposition, not just every two years, tell the athlete stories in a more in depth way, in a regular way. And, You know, we, over the course of the last seven years, um, you know, we've had live events. Um, we've had uh, VOD events. We've had daily news. We've had uh, features and we've had documentaries. And we've built a library that's probably unrivaled in And sports. I mean, we have, I say we, I'm no, you know, and 
I should be saying they, uh, but I still I still uh, think of <laughs> myself as part of that family, and and I hope they will accept me as as being the being one as a family member as well. But we produced um, a thousand episodes of content from seventy five to eighty different original series, all about sport, all about. Olympic athletes or people who want to be in the Olympics. And I don't know anybody who has that, you know, it's, um, and that breadth of content is most of it is evergreen, the original series. So the vision is, you know, you want to know, you know, you want to, you want to know historical things. We have that. You want to know about current athletes. You have that. You want to know about what athletes are doing outside of their training. They're serious about that. And, um, you know, the, the, we, we won like 37 awards for that content. Uh, and, and we got an Emmy award, uh, as well, which is probably the most prestigious of the, of the, uh, Industry. Visual Arts Awards for for the television format. You know, you got the Academy Awards and Oscars for, for film. Five or six Webby Awards. And all that content is sitting there owned by the IOC on Olympics.com now. Um, and, um, you know, the documentary series we did, Five Rings Films with Frank Marshall, legendary Hollywood producer Mike Tolan, who is the uh, producer of The Last Dance, John Weinbach, who now runs Skydance uh, Sports Media and exec produced by our own Greg Grogel. We have nine documentaries that are fabulous, the latest being The Redeem Team, which is on Netflix. Yeah. Um, so there's you look at that going back to your question. So, yeah, if you want to watch the games, great do so. But if you want to know, be better educated going into a games or find out more between games, olympics.com. That's where you go. Hmm. Tell us the process for the reading team. I mean, putting together, you, you, you were a co-producer with Yanis Exatrius, um, the IOC, Lebron James, Wenwei. Uh, I mean, not easy to put together such a brilliant team around one project. What is the process of building such a powerful documentary? Well, first of all, let, I, let me take a step back. When we were in 2015, 2016, determining our what we wanted to do on the original content creation, I said to Greg Grogel, who was our director of original uh, programming, at the time, said, I want us to be in this documentary space. And I, Peter Tortorici, who was an advisor to us and who had been president of CBS, he and I were in a car uh, going to a meeting in Sa at Samsung in Seoul, Korea. And there was this awful traffic jam. It was a, about an hour ride and we were stuck not moving for about an hour and a half. So we were throwing things against the wall, ideas, you know, we had a lot of time. And I said to Peter, I said, you know, I want us to do these documentaries. I want us to do 30 for 30s, HBO type, because, you know, we can own this space from the Olympic archive. And he said to me, do you know Frank Marshall? And I said, well, no, but I know who he is. You know, Frank has done, he created Amblin with Spielberg. He had done Indiana Jones. He'd done Jurassic, Born, you know, everything. He said, well, talk to Frank. <laughs> and I said, well, is he going to take my call? He said two things about Frank. One, he's the nicest guy in Hollywood. And two, he loves the Olympics. Huh? I said, okay. Sounds <laughs> <laughs> good. So, we, uh, and, and he was right on both. <laughs> and, um, you know, Frank's biggest point was when I first spoke to him, he said, do we have full access to the archives? I said, yeah, for the most part. He said, we won't have to pay for the footage. I said, no, we own it. We're not going to charge ourselves. 
he said, and he asked me like three times. <laughs> is that real? You know, is that real? <laughs> are you? <laughs> you know, yeah. I want to hear you say it again. I said, yes, we own the we, we own the footage. He said, okay, I'm in. And he brought in Mike Tolan and Mandalay and John. And uh, we started making these, these brilliant films. Uh, the first one was the Nagano tapes, which was Frank's idea. He had been at Nagano shooting an IMAX film. And uh, he went to the gold medal game between the Czech Republic and, and Russia. And uh, he said, you know, I went to that game. This is an amazing story. It was like four or five years after the Czech Republic became the Czech Republic. They, you know, the, the Iron Curtain had fallen. And we did this fabulous film about that Czech Republic team beating Russia and shocking the world. And, uh, you know, we we did one on Rulon Gardner, Peekaboo Street, Peekaboo Street. Frank directed himself with Lindsey Vaughn. Lindsey's childhood idol was um, was Peekaboo Street. We did um, the Golden Generation. I mentioned earlier it was the prequel to the Redeem Team. Yeah. Um, uh, the, we did uh, uh, a brilliant curling story about UK UK curling. Um, so we then were. What do we do? What do we do next? And we had the, you know, we did Golden Generation. Let's let's do Redeem Team because that was the the next event of how the U.S. was going to come back. And it was an interesting story because USA Basketball after Athens, they kind of decided, all right, we got to start over. We got to get back to the got to get back to owning the Olympics and not letting other people. Uh, uh, take our our gold, and um, we uh, we uh, John Weinbach he he directed it, and um, we were um, trying to figure out okay what's the best way for us to sh- to distribute this, and our TMS colleagues in Lausanne the, that run the marketing and television services for the IOC, you know went and talked to the various. Uh, platforms about, you know, did they want to partner with us on this movie and hmm. and uh, distribute it? And Netflix came in and um, first time ever they, for you guys. I'm sorry. First time ever you were. Putting yeah, it was the first. Yeah, it was the first time that we had distributed any of our content on a worldwide streaming platform that we had produced. Um, and Greg, Greg Grogel was, uh, he was the bulldog on it from our side, pushing it through. We, we had planned to do it, I think in 20, uh, 2018, late 2019, um, thinking Kobe was going to be at the center of the documentary. And then unfortunately, you know, he, he had the tragic accident and we, said, okay, does this still make sense? Because, you know, and it did, you know, we just kind of had to shift the narrative a bit to, and the film, you know, John did a <laughs> amazing job. It was, uh, wasn't easy. You know, we had a lot of hurdles that we had to go through, but, you know, when I'm sitting there, we went to um, the screening the premiere in LA on the Netflix campus with Dwayne Wade as our executive producer. And he was very much involved um, in telling the story. And uh, we had Ted Sarandos, the Netflix CEO and Frank and Mike and John and all of us. And we we're like, you know, this is, this is a big moment. Um, and, you know, a week after it debuted and I open up my Netflix app and I see that we're the number three movie in the U S I was like, yeah, man, <laughs> you're, you're damn right. You're damn <laughs> mission, right. mission accomplished. So it was uh, very gratifying, very redeeming, so to speak, uh, for what we had done with the other nine films uh, or eight films to, to have that one on, on the Netflix platform. 
And we can see it's a long process from this conversation in Seoul. Now I will know that if I'm driving, I will always use a pen to mark ideas <laughs> of the windows. <laughs> right. uh, from Seoul to 22, it's a, a few years process. And fantastic results, there's no doubt. But everyone to look at the Redeem team, it's beautiful content. Um, why open it to Netflix? Because the rest you've financed and distributed with all your own um, with your own channels. Why did you open it this time? Well, we wanted to hit a wider audience and <laughs> see what you know. We used it somewhat as a as a as a test case to see how the content would do and if there would be a uh, a market outside of our own platforms for that and. You know, there have been successful Olympic documentaries done previously on different platforms, but none that were produced by us. Yeah. I mean, this was it was it was produced by us. We yeah. um, we you know, I had to I had to sign off on all the budgets and, you know, and we had to make sure that we were doing it in an economical way. And um, and now I think it's you know, an opportunity going forward to, to be able to uh, see what other opportunities are out there to build that Olympic brand, you know, and uh, the business side and the fan engagement side. Exactly. Yeah. Mm. Because, you know, the, one of the other gratifying things about that film is that there were a few stories right before it, it uh, right after it debuted where the University of Alabama collegiate football team used it as a motivation for their team the night before a game. The Philadelphia Eagles of the NFL, their coach showed the trailer to his team. It's, it is about team. It is about people bonding together about big egos, uh, worldwide superstars, all coalescing together for a common goal and a mission and doing what it took and being led by someone who they all didn't particularly like. They didn't know him that well and Kobe, and he set the example. You know, they're all coming in from the Las Vegas Strip at 4.35 in the morning and they see Kobe on the elevator going to the gym. They're like, what the hell is he doing? <laughs> and soon thereafter, they bought in. They were all in the gym at five, six in the morning. And then they, and you know, it was. And, and very, that's what is fantastic about this documentary because you feel it's 100% authentic. It's not oh, yeah. It's authentic. It's what happened. Yeah. There was a fabulous moment. Um, We we had a meet. Pau Gasol, uh-huh. the Spanish team, is an IOC member now, <clears throat> and he came to a meeting that we had in Madrid uh, with uh, IOC president Thomas Bach, where we were updating on certain things, and we showed a clip of the movie to Pau and and the group. And afterwards, I, I said to I said to Powell, I said, "Sorry, we, you know, that probably wasn't a, a great memory because you guys, you know, you lost you lost the game." And it, he said, he said, "No, it was, you know, it it was fantastic. Uh, one because, you know, I I saw my brother, uh, and he's speaking to me, and I still, you know, can't pick up the phone and talk to him and." You know, I'm I'm getting a little emotional repeating what he said, but you know, it just goes to show what the Olympics can do and is about. You know, yeah. it brings people together, it creates memories for ages, and uh, what what Powell said was so so powerful. And that yeah, he wanted to win the gold medal, but he also knew that you know, his best friend was uh, leading the other team and he was happy for him and, and how they, 
you know, uh, you just got to watch the film. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And there's no great victory without great opponents, right? Uh, and the, and the Spanish team, oh, was so incredible. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean, if you look at that, you want a season two, which would be the story of the Spanish team. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> because yeah, they're, they're a little bit like the Argentinians. Yeah, they're a little bit like the Argentinians, where they played a lot together. Yeah. So you were saying, I say we when I should say they, but I, I'm pretty sure they were an Olympic Hall of Fame, not for athletes, but for the people who make the Olympics. I'm sure you would be, you'll be a good one in it. <laughs> <laughs> well. <laughs> I appreciate uh, that. That's for that's for others to decide. But it's I couldn't have asked for a um, you know a, a more rewarding time uh, doing that. And I never imagined that I would. When you know when I was uh, watching those Montreal games, I never envisioned that that would be my path. But boy, has it been a fabulous way to live your life. Hmm. So why is that decision to leave the Olympics? Well, I'm sure you can get tired of producing 12 Olympics. <laughs> uh, and creating a fantastic, um, you, you call it blue ship, I, I guess in English, $180 million uh, campus for film and TV production center back home in Atlanta. Yeah, it, you know, a lot of people have asked me this I, and it wasn't easy. You know, the Olympics have been my life, but my life was somewhat back here. Um, my, uh, you know, my family lived in Spain when we were there for uh, four years and they moved back to the U S in 2019. And um, during the pandemic, mostly I was, I was in the U S cause we went to full remote. I just had to, I was working European hours, you know, If I scheduled the meetings, I would schedule them at like 6 or 7 a.m. For me, you know, if they were scheduled by the European team, sometimes I'd be up at 1.30, 2 a.m. For, for my time. But, um, you know, it was Georgia um, has become the third largest hub for TV and film production in the U.S. behind Los Angeles and New York. And um, there's a lot of activity here uh, in, in growing the uh, entertainment community. And, you know, I just was presented a, a fabulous opportunity by the person who had set it up to be part of the ownership and management team of building this new facility uh, that eventually, if we continue on our fundraising and our, our, our lending goals, we could be one of the biggest in Georgia. Uh, and the, you know, my, I have three boys. One of them is second year of university, but the others are still in their last years of high school. And um, it was just a way to get back home uh, on a more regular basis. You can't get those, those times back. Um, and, you know, I was, I was, uh, obviously, you know, I said it was a tough decision. It was also sad to leave after so long, but I also left, you know, we had just done two back-to-back -back games. Olympics.com was the world's biggest sports website in the summer, uh, for two months, July and August of 2021 all of the transitions that we have made from Olympic channel to olympics.com to one platform to harmonizing all that was, was in place. And I, I left with my head very high saying, you know, we've accomplished a hell of a lot and there's a lot to be proud of. And uh, there's, there's a fabulous team back there that I know is going to do even better than what uh, we've done the last few years. And the time was right to, um, to uh, make the move, um, be back home, uh, be closer to my immediate family and extended family. And I got an offer that was, you know, 
too good to, to turn down. Yeah. It's called Blue Star Studio, by the way. Blue Star Studios. We, uh, we've taken over an, an old army base uh, about 20 minutes outside of Atlanta. Uh, we're under construction. You may have heard in the background some construction noise. Um, but we have um, our, our phase one will have uh, two 20,000 square foot uh, sound stages with the ultimate plan being a total of 18. Um, and it's a fabulous refurbishment of old historical buildings with new purpose-built sound stages and a burgeoning entertainment industry in, in Atlanta. Wow. Congratulations. Sounds like a good plan. Uh, and I'm sure it's going to be very weird and very peaceful, maybe at the same time to watch Paris 24 well-seated, having a drink <laughs> and relax. <laughs> well, I would love, you know, I would, I would love to be be able to be there as well. And what I what I've said is enjoy the games. Exactly. Because it's hard to when you're when you're working so hard and you're doing all you're doing and you know there's not a there's not a lot of time just to sit back and enjoy uh, what's happened. But yeah, Paris, I'd love to go as a spectator, enjoy it, and I'd love to sit in front of a big screen TV and and watch it because That's one thing I haven't done in, since, since the Barcelona games. Oh. I have not, I've not been able to sit and just watch it on television. About 30 years. Yeah. <laughs> Congratulations. Congratulations and all the best for Blue Stars Studios in Atlanta. Um, we'd like to close our podcast with a series of questions. Uh, quick ones for quick okay. answers. I'm sure you know Actor Studio. Uh, uh, yeah. So it's inspired from that. He was inspired. James was inspired by Marcel Post. Uh, so here it goes. Your favorite event inside the Olympics. Okay. So uh, can I can I have more than one or do yeah, I? Yeah, yeah. Go for it. Okay. So um, Michael Johnson, yeah. Atlanta, Golden winning the 200 meter. I was there. I actually was watched it in person. Uh, and then unbelievably, um, I'm a, I'm a guy from the South. Atlanta has uh, screwed up two hockey teams. They've came and went to other places, but three of the greatest moments in sports that I have witnessed are hockey games. 2010 gold medal, uh, Canada, us and Vancouver. Unfortunately we lost, but incredible incredible match 2014 uh u.s russia and sochi where u.s won in a shootout and then 2018 u.s versus canada women's and pyeongchang won by the u.s after i think about a 20-year drought of winning the uh gold medal those those are the highlights Ooh. your favorite event sport event outside of the olympics University of Georgia college football. <laughs> that was an easy one. That was easy. That's the easiest <laughs> one. <laughs> Your favorite sound in a stadium? The University of Georgia uh, battle hymn uh, trumpet player at the beginning of the game. Hmm. I won't ask you to do it, but I look for it. <laughs> yeah, don't, yeah, don't ask me. <laughs> Your favorite word? <sighs> Oh, well, there's one that I can't say, and uh, I'll say please. Oh. Nice one. Your least favorite word? Uh, tomorrow. Why tomorrow? Because I'm impatient. Okay. What can be done now? <laughs> <laughs> what professional sense on your own would you like would you have liked to attend or would you like to attend? Sorry, say that again. What what profession or sense on your own would you have liked to attend? Um I would say um 
some some sort of medical surgical. Oh, uh, I'm just amazed that you know people can repair human beings and do it so easily. I know it's not that easy, but it's you know. <laughs> I just admire it. Just, it's like the broadcasting of the Olympics. It yeah. seems easy, but it's not. <laughs> you know, people like to say it, it's not brain surgery, but you know, to a brain surgeon, it's brain surgeon, and they do it so flawlessly. And I'm, I admire that. You know. Yeah. Beautiful. If you had one more hour every day, what would you like to do? Uh, learn. Learn more. And whatever you know whatever it may be. That's, that's one of the things that I like about this new, this new challenge is I'm learning new things. Uh, this, this old dog, so to speak, is learning new things. So I'm hoping it'll keep me younger. <laughs> If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Welcome. <laughs> Come on in. <laughs> Just like the opening ceremony of the Olympics. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> cool Mark thank you so much for sharing with us uh, best with uh, your new endeavor Blue Star Studio and we'll be in touch and hopefully see you in Atlanta someday soon and yeah, absolutely for great being with you I appreciate the time thank you all for listening to a new SIS Masters podcast we'd love you to subscribe please leave a review or rate the podcast it will help us improve We'd love to see you in the next episode. Enjoy.